a couple announcements. Anybody get the North American Division Adventist World, the November edition, on page... Five, one of our class members from the, from the university, Xavier Hazen, is pictured here. He's one of the uh, student missionaries doing a video project in Lesotho, Africa. He's over there, and that's why he hasn't been here with us. We have a special guest with us this morning that I want to introduce to the class. Charles, come on up here. And I want Charles to say hi to everybody. Hello. <laughs> This is a great class, and I really appreciate all that you do for supporting the radio program that he and I do together on the Live Talk Radio Network. Charles Mills, host of our radio program. I want to come here personally and thank you for supporting this, because if you listen to the program, you hear some pretty surprised and thankful people call into the program to thank this man for what he is doing for their spirituality, for for their image of God for what they know about God, what they believe about God. It is life-changing, as you know, week after week, uh, listening to him. And I just want to come and say thank you very much for your continuing support of Simple Solutions on the Life Talk Radio Network. Thank you. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit and your angels will join us this morning and that we might see your face more clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly People on the Move, the book of Numbers. And the title for this week's lesson is The Madness of a Prophet. And if somebody would open the Sabbath lesson there and read from the quarterly the memory text, which is 1 Timothy 6.10, but read it from the quarterly because I'm not sure we have the same version here. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, my first question is, this text says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Do you believe that to be true? Do you believe the Bible verse as you read it? Yes. I hear yes. Yes, here's a question right in front. See, uh, so you're focusing on the love aspect that's the issue. It's not the money that's the problem, it's the love of money. But the question here is, of all evil, is that really true? See, the love is the problem, the love of money, but the root of all evil. And so the question that popped in my mind, same question, did Lucifer in heaven, when he started his rebellion, begin his rebellion for love of money? Uh, okay, so then we have to ask a question. Well, how do we understand the meaning of this text then? And, so, and the reason I wanted you to read it from the quarterly is because the quarterly gives us the King James Version. But other versions read it this way. NIV, English Standard, Good News, uh, and uh, NCV and the, NR, and the New Revised Standard Version all read it this way. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Does that make a difference to you? You see, there are two ways we can interpret this text. The, uh, actually, I guess there's three. One is that all evil truly stems from the love of money. Or we can interpret it as the love of money is the root of all different kinds of evil, all different forms of evil. Or there's one other way we can interpret it, that money here is representative of what money does. And money, as somebody already said in here, is power. And it's the love of power, which is the root of all evil. Now, in heaven, did Lucifer seek after power? 
Yeah. So, what do you think about those possibilities? Which, which one do you think? All kinds or love of power is the root of all evil? Both. I mean, both would be true, love of money, but isn't it really the love of power? That's the issue. Now, if it's the love of power, does that mean that power is bad or evil? Or possessing power is bad or evil? Okay, here's you hear this comment? God has power. And that's exactly right. Um, does the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love power, seek power, or pursue power? What does the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do with power? Give it away to serve. Do you hear it? Do you hear what he said? Give it away. They disperse it. They distribute it. They give it away. That's what they do with it. They don't pursue it. They don't try to hoard it. They don't try to uh, uh, accumulate it. They give away power. And so we read in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, not, let's not grasp for power, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the God the Father. Now, question I have for you. Well, first off, thoughts. What do you think about the idea? That God has power, but he doesn't pursue it. He distributes or gives away or disseminates power. Not that he gives it away. He doesn't, allow, he doesn't use it to control. Well, um, how is it that the universe came to be? Was he holding to power or was he giving power away? Using. using his power, how is it sustained? How is it that, that the planets and, and everything and the stars are all continually sustained in their orbits right now? Through his power. That he is using to give away to the benefit of his creation. Well, you could look at it like that, or you could look at it like he's protecting what he created. Mm. So he's, then, he, then he is controlling and hoarding the power to protect what's his. He's using it to protect what he created. He also established laws of physics and those things parts of science. We understand those laws kind of take care of themselves. Do, do those laws take care of themselves, or are even the laws of physics still dependent upon God behind them? Because one, one school of philosophy has God created the universe, spun it out there, it's now running independent of his um, direct oversight. I don't think it's running independent. I think there's a guardianship, if you will. There are there are rules that it that it can control itself in terms of your sister talking about universes, orbital motions, and things of that sort. I mean, laws of gravity and quantum physics as we know it uh, aren't really going to change. But what we have is, is constants and developments based on those laws and those trends. Now, there are, I'm sure, governing and controlling and intervention actions that happen, or else our land would look like the clock marks of the moon. But, um... The inspired record would tell us that even the laws of physics and the fact that the planets still orbit are doing so because of God's sustaining power. Now, the scientific evidence would say, well, these things are running independent of God's sustaining power. So, that's something that we can't prove with science yet. Think it through whichever way. What about the power to procreate? 
Is that a certain power? It's a godlike power. Did God give that power away? So do we have evidence that he gives away power? He distributes it. He doesn't hoard it. And that's the principle we're looking at, that God is not a hoarder of his power, but he disseminates his character, his goodness, his love, his, his power. He shares. How about with Lucifer? Was Lucifer exalted to the highest place a created being could be exalted, given a position of, of authority and governance and leadership? In other words, he had certain privileges that, that he, he could, he could um, exercise in a delegated way that were given to him. But God knows that Eventually, let everything run its course, because his way is going to win out in the end. Was Adam given authority to govern planet Earth? Yes. Delegated from God, of course, but in other words, he, but he was given that authority. And so I guess the point I'm making is simply that God's character is one of giving, rather than one of taking and hoarding. That's the, that's the point. I was just thinking that perhaps we're, we're concerned that if he's giving away power, he'll have less, but that's not it. Oh, yeah. The more he gives, he still has that power. It's not a matter of how there's Yeah, I think that's a good point. When I say giving away, it means he doesn't have it. He gives it away for his intelligent creatures to use. It's more of a sharing than a giving. Okay, I like that. Sharing. He's willing to share his power. Yeah. And in fact, the redeemed are going to sit where in heaven? But they're going to share a throne with somebody, aren't they? Aren't the redeemed going to sit and share Christ's throne? Isn't that what the scripture says? So I like that. The sharing of the powers is a nice way to put it. So, next question. It says in the text from Philippians that, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Why will Jesus be exalted, or why is Jesus exalted? Is this exaltation of Jesus something that is conferred by the Father or something earned by Jesus? In what way is Jesus exalted over all others? Is there a third option? Well, we're, we're going through these. So what option? Do you have a third option you want to throw out there? It's intrinsic to him. Intrinsic to him. Well, that's the next question. In what way is he exalted? Is he exalted in some ability, capacity, talent, power that he didn't previously possess? When Jesus is exalted by the Father, is he exalted in some capacity, ability, talent, power that he did not previously possess? No. 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 So then this exaltation, what is it? Yes. I think Jesus as God has not been exalted because he was already God. But Jesus as man, he learned obedience, the Bible says. He was exalted by God through his perfect life on this earth. Well, let's, let's think that through. If, if, if this exaltation is only about his humanity being exalted, or is this about the, the being, the divine human being, the totality of Jesus being exalted? Look through some more evidence and ask some more questions. We just said it's not in some capacity or ability that he didn't previously possess. Because he was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. All things were created by him. Nothing was created without him. So he has the, 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 the divinity. He's divine. But was this exaltation in the awareness or minds of the created beings, that they came to appreciate the true nature and character of Christ more fully. Is that the type of exaltation that's going on here? Where the created beings come to a higher appreciation of who Jesus really is. Christ has given evidence that he is safe to have that sort of power. 
And who needed the evidence? power in the universe, what did he do? He, he washed the disciples' feet, even the one that would betray him. And who needed the evidence? Did the, did, did the Father or the Holy Spirit need the evidence in order to say, you know what, man, Christ has just proven to us, God the Father, God the Spirit, that, you know what, he's safe. We can go ahead and exalt him. So the minds of the created beings came to see Christ in a way that there. So it wasn't something the Father was handing over to the Son that the Son didn't already possess. It wasn't that the Father was now giving authority that the Son didn't already have. It was that the creatures in the universe somehow didn't appreciate the Son for fully what he was. Possible? This is out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 37 and 38. And it's describing the events in heaven before the creation of earth at the inception of Lucifer's rebellion. And it says after Lucifer began spreading some, some concerns about Jesus, this is what, uh, what God did. It says, the king of the universe summoned the heavenly host before him, that in their presence he might set forth the true position of his son and show the relation he sustained to all created beings. The Son of God shared the Father's throne and the glory of the eternal, self-existent one encircled both. Leaving his place in the immediate presence of the Father, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among angels. The exaltation, there's that question, the exaltation, the exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father was represented as an injustice to Lucifer, who, it was claimed, was also entitled to reverence and honor. There had been no change in the position and authority of Christ. Lucifer's envy and misrepresentation and his claims to equality with Christ had made necessary a statement of the true position of the Son of God. But this had been the same from the beginning. Many angels were, however, blinded by Lucifer's deception. So this exaltation of the Father and exalting his Son before earth was made did he actually confer something to Christ that Christ didn't already have? No. This exaltation, this declaration from the Father didn't inherently change Christ in any way or provide Christ with any new abilities or authority that he didn't already have. It was a clarifying statement because why was it needed? Why was this clarifying statement from the Father needed? Because people are questioning his goodness and his love. And they were questioning goodness and love because... Lucifer was lying and misrepresenting him. They were questioning the relationship of who Jesus was. They were questioning who Jesus was to the Father, and Lucifer misrepresented who Christ really was. And the question for you is, when, when in heaven, God called this meeting, called all the angels together, put, made it very clear from the Father's own mouth that Christ is equal with the Father, did that settle the issue for all the angels? When this exaltation of Christ by the declaration of the Father was made, was, were the issues in heaven settled? Does that give us a clue as to, in the end of time, the exaltation of Christ and what it really will be? Is it something conferred by the Word of God, or is it something earned by Christ's achievement here on earth? You're not sure. Well, we just saw that the conferring by the word of God didn't settle the issue, didn't convince a third of the angels, didn't sway them back to loyalty. When you say earned, it would be earned in our minds. Earned in our minds, yes. Earned in the minds of the created beings. Does Christ's achievement uh, sway you? Do you? When you look at what Christ has done, does it persuade you? Is the evidence of his love and self-sacrifice um, impactful in your mind as you appreciate it? 
Is that more impactful, seeing the life that he lived, the, the power he laid down, the humbling of himself to come to earth, the sacrifice on the cross, as you see these purposeful choices to lay aside power and give of himself freely, do you find that he, that is more persuasive than simply, and I shouldn't say simply, but just the declaration from the Father? I find it more persuasive, don't you? Yeah, and this is why, and this is the connection that Paul makes in the passage in, in Philippians. He didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped. He humbled himself to the form of the servant all the way to the cross. Therefore, he will be exalted. The Father will exalt him. But it's not because he's now earned the Father's respect. He hasn't proven to the Father that he deserves exaltation. He's proved to us and the rest of the universe that he is worthy of our worship. Does that make sense? Somebody read the first two paragraphs in Sabbath's lesson there. It begins, this story of Balaam. The story of Balaam is well known and often used to make jokes, such as, well, if God could talk to Balaam's donkey, then he could talk to so-and-so. That would be me. Oh. <laughs> See, it works. It still works. In one sense, however, there's nothing really funny about this story. Though it can be read on various levels, Balaam's encounter with the Lord can be seen as another example of how sin, if not overcome, rest with the power of God can lead us into paths of destruction. Okay, this idea of sin in our lives leading in the paths of destruction. Any modern day examples anybody would like to just throw out there is, is how that could happen. And how does it destroy? See, we have at least... In the child's like mind, when the child who, who was told by mommy and daddy, brush your teeth, and the child doesn't do it, what's the child's primary concern when they disobey? Punishment from? So who's the one to be, what's to be feared? The failure to brush teeth, which results in dental caries and, and losing of your teeth, is that what to be feared, or is it the parent to be feared? You see, and, and childlike Christians have this idea. God gives us a rule. Don't do these things. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not defile the spirit temple with alcohol, drugs, and all this other stuff. And if we do this stuff, what's the problem? Well, we need to fear God inflicting punishment upon us. And so we've got we've to do something to protect us from his inflicted punishment. So we'll claim the blood of, his, blood of his son to be applied to our accounts in heaven. And then the Father has had payment and he can't punish us. So what do we fear? We don't fear sin, which destroys us. We fear God, who will punish us. This is the childlike Christian mind. But we need to see a little deeper than that. Sin itself, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, will bring forth death, James chapter 1. Something about sin is damaging. So can we think of some examples right now? What does sin do to the sinner? How about alcohol and drugs? Let's start with that. Okay, I heard that somewhere. Numbs person to the pain. Yeah, see, this is what all sin does. Alcohol and drugs are the most obvious. But all sin, when you participate in sin, it actually numbs your conscience or sears it, as Paul says, with a hot iron. We lose sensitivity. We lose awareness. We lose a conviction of guilt. We become blinded. Our reason becomes warped. We don't appreciate anymore the damage that's happening to us. And this is why the biblical metaphor for sin is leprosy. Leprosy is the metaphor. Now, anybody know uh, how leprosy works? It's an infection from a, a bacteria that actually destroys the nerve endings that, that perceive pain. So you become numb. This is what leprosy does. Leprosy does not destroy tissue. 
Lepers always have destroyed tissue, but not because of the leprosy. The leprosy destroys the, the nerve ending, so you don't feel anything anymore. And so think the problem through with that. You don't feel anything, so you touch the hot stove. When you touch the hot stove and you have normal sensation, what do you do instantly? You pull back. But if you don't have any sensation, what do you do? You leave it there until your smell smells something burning. Oh, that feels... Oh, oh, and you've lost a finger. Or you cut yourself with, a, with something. Uh, when you have no sensation, you can cut off a finger because you don't know to pull back. This is what happens to lepers. This is why they lose tissue. is because they no longer have sensation. They're numbed. This is what sin does to the conscience, the sensitivities of the mind. This is what alcohol and drugs do. Alcohol and drugs numb people. Alcohol and drugs also, on a neurobiologic level, damage the reward centers and cause an artificial... Uh, activation of the reward centers. Let me give you an example of what that's like. And the reward pathways, God created us to experience pleasure, but only through godly mechanisms. Satan knows that if he can divert us to seek pleasure directly and artificially stimulate the pleasure centers, that it damages us. And, and what happens when you artificially stimulate the pleasure centers? That you over, um, over-release a chemical called dopamine on the pleasure centers, and you get these really intense emotional highs, euphoria. But the brain can't handle it, so the brain responds by down-regulating the receptors that respond to this, this chemical called dopamine. And what happens then, that that means is, that normal godly pleasures aren't pleasurable anymore. People who do cocaine, methamphetamine, sex with their spouse doesn't have the same joy. It doesn't really, doesn't really do much anymore. It's kind of boring. It doesn't have that, that kick that it used to have, because the receptors that respond to the normal dopamine surges are down-regulated. <clears throat> An example that you could relate to, Imagine that you've been um, maybe working in your yard all morning for three or four hours. You're hungry. You come in and somebody offers you a, a fresh, perfectly ripe strawberry. How does that taste? Imagine that same strawberry is being offered to you as you finish your last bite of a Snickers bar. <laughs> now, now, how does that strawberry taste? Sour. It's sour and you want to spit it out. Does the strawberry change at all? Strawberry is the same. What's changed? Your ability to be sensitive to the way God... Now, this is a very good metaphor because where in nature can you go out on a tree and pick off Snickers bars? (laughs) See, Snickers bars are artificial. They're man-made concentrations to give a higher kick on the taste receptors that overwhelm the taste receptors for a while and normal... Taste isn't appreciated anymore, and godly um, uh, experiences are now sour. The strawberry is sour. The orange is sour. The apple is sour. Godly things that would nurture us, we don't like anymore. We want this artificial stuff that destroys us. This is what drugs do to the body. So normal caring for people, altruistic things, when you uh, uh, normal discovery, it's just not joyful anymore. Life is boring. And so we want to do something to artificially stimulate ourselves. Uh, but, good news, God made us in a pliable way. Our brains are adaptable and changeable. So if you go four hours after your Snickers bar and then eat the strawberry, you enjoy it again. There's that recovery. The brain recovers a little slower than the taste buds. And so it takes a time after some abuse of some of these substances to actually recover and be sensitive again. But if we follow God's mechanisms, the brain will recover and we will have joy and pleasure again in healthy things. Not just alcohol and drugs. What about bigotry, pride, arrogance, um, violating the law of love, robbery, stealing, adultery, murder? If we do these things, any of that stuff, you cheat on your exams in school, what happens inside you? More peace, less peace. 
what emotion will you experience? Fear and guilt. Fear and guilt. Fear and guilt. Fear and guilt is no fun, so people want guilt to go away. Now, there's, if it's appropriate guilt because you've actually done something wrong, there's only two ways to get rid of appropriate guilt. One is God's way, a true humbling repentance and seeking God's grace, restoration if necessary, and a change of heart where you're back in harmony. You've experienced God's forgiveness, you've had a repentant heart, and you have set to make things right that you've made wrong. And then there's a, there's a peace that comes with that as God's uh, methods are reproducing our heart again. But there's another way you can avoid experiencing the feeling of guilt, and that's through denial and distortion. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. You wouldn't have put her in the garden? I would have never done this. I hadn't done anything wrong. It's her fault. Denial and distortion. And if we deny and distort, we are creating lies that we hide behind to avoid the experience of guilt. But in order to do that, we have to warp truth. We have to warp reality. But truth and reality don't warp. So we're actually only warping our minds. So the metaphor that I give is imagine looking at a telephone pole and then I hold a lens up between you and the pole and now as you look at the pole through the lens, the pole appears bent. Have we bent the pole? No, we've only bent our view of the pole. People who do this, their minds become bent like this and so when they look out at the world, they have a skew to how they interpret and see the world. And the only thing that will unskew their world view is the truth bringing the truth back to bear. But people avoid the truth. Why do they avoid the truth? I have patients who are molested as kids, and at some point in our healing process, they always, almost always say something like this. I just wish my mom, my dad, whoever it was that abused me, would admit what they did. Just wish they'd admit it. And I say to them, let's take that at face value. Let's let's pretend for a moment that today they truly accept and own and admit what they did to you. What will they go through today if they do that? Will they go through guilt, shame, self-loathing, self-disgust? Will there be a real, negative, uncomfortable, emotional pathway that they're going to have to work through before they find peace with God again? Won't they have to go through that? This is why people don't go through it. If they go to a certain point and do certain things, they will deny and distort, they will avoid, they won't deal with it because it's very painful to deal with that kind of stuff when we've made mistakes. But... I can tell any, all of us in here a truth. You can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. The truth will always come home. We deal with it now, today on earth. We deal with it under the umbrella of God's grace. And we experience transformation, regeneration, and healing. If we deny it and deny it and deny it, we continue to warp our own reason, see our own conscience, we will still come face to face with the truth. But it will be on the day of judgment, the day that we face the source of all truth. And this is what Paul talks about when he talks in Romans about building up wrath for the day of wrath. The more lies we build up, the more distortions we hide behind, then there's, there's more pain and suffering when the truth comes burning through those lies and we come face to face with the reality of our own condition, unhealed, the reality of the pain we've caused to others, unresolved, and thus What is it is the cancer that ultimately destroys us? This is where we started this whole little discussion. Sin is what destroys. Unremedied sin destroys the sinner, not God. And that is what we should fear. And so that was the point of this whole thing, that if we don't resolve those sin, it damages us, it warps us, it sears our mind, we lose the perspective, and over the course of time, we, we become insensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. All right, Sunday's lesson.
Third paragraph. Somebody read the starting. It's kind of ironic. It's kind of ironic that Balak, facing what he believed to be an insurmountable foe, would seek out a prophet of the God of the very people he wanted cursed and defeated. Whether he realized what he was doing, we don't know. But from our perspective, it's obvious that Balak's plans were doomed from the start. One only would wonder, too, why he didn't get one of his own local holy men to petition the Moabite gods to defend them against Israel. Instead, he called upon a prophet of the true God. Perhaps a key to that is found in Numbers 22.6. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Any thoughts about that? Do you find it strange that Balak went to a different holy man than one of his own holy men? Well, what kind of a god did Balak worship? It wasn't the true god, so what's left? Yeah, one of the false gods, a pagan god. Now, think about what are the characteristics of pagan gods? Asterisk, Baal, Beelzebub, Molech. What are the characteristics of pagan gods? Are they benevolent and kind and gracious and giving and primarily concerned about sacrificing themselves for their worshippers' sake? Is that the characteristics of pagan gods? No. Are pagan gods thought to be powerful? Yes, they're thought to have power. That's powers over various areas. Sometimes it's disseminated. One's power over the rain. One's power over the fertility. One's power. But they are thought to have power, but not goodness. Power without goodness is how a lot of the, the, of the various pagan gods are, are, are looked upon. All in need of appeasement. She says all in need of appeasement, which is my next question. Are pagan gods viewed as being influenced by the acts of their worshipers? Yes. Yes. So then, spiritualism constantly seeks to project the idea that we humans can control the spirits. We can control the spirits and get them to do our bidding. Thus you have voodoo dolls incantations, magic, spells, and all this stuff we do in spiritualism so that we as humans can do something to force or control the spirit to do our bidding. Now, with that your mindset, is it in any way uh, mystifying what Balak tried to do? I don't find it mystifying at all. That's his worldview. That's his philosophy. That's how he thinks the gods work. This is just a god he's not familiar with, so let's get one of the, one of the, one of the prophets of the god who knows this god. He'll know how to influence him. He'll know which incantations to use. He'll know which magic spells to throw, which voodoo dolls to use, and he'll be able to make this god do what, what Balak wants because the gods can be controlled by people. This is how it's often looked at. As we think about this further, it says in Scripture, Hebrews 2.14, that Christ came in human flesh that he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Did you all know the devil holds the power of death? The question is, what is that power? What is actually the devil's power? Because the devil wants to mystify it. He doesn't want you to see what his real power is. He wants you to think some other stuff is his power. What is the devil's real power? Let's, let's, let's do a little math. If John 17.3 says, this is life eternal, that... They might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and now sent. So if knowing God, that intimate knowledge of God, that connected relationship with God, is life eternal, what would death be? Not knowing God, not having that connection. So then what's Satan's power of death? The lies that he tells about God that we believe that sever our connection with God. It's very simple. So Satan's power, he's the father of lies. It's the only thing he spawned. It's the only thing he created, lies. 
And those lies believed sever our connection with the source of all life. Thus, he has power to kill only as he gets us to believe lies about God and severs us from him. Now, with that in mind, when we get this idea of Satan's power, what are superstitions? Are superstitions based on truth? They're based on lies. Superstition is a belief or notion not based on reason or knowledge in or of an ominous significance of a particular thing. Was Balak superstitious? Yes. Do people who believe false concepts of God become superstitious? doesn't matter your faith. If you're a Christian and you believe false concepts of God, you become superstitious. And what kind of superstitions do we see in Christianity? Anybody want to venture a few? Okay, this appeasement idea, and how can it be a superstition? How about if you do a certain ritual? A certain ritual somehow cleanses you. Baptism. Baptism can be superstition, rather than an expression of the heart. It can be. How about communion service? Can it become superstitious? Uh, anybody heard hocus pocus? Some theories as to where that phrase came from? The Latin Mass. The Latin Mass, when they would have Mass, they give the, the bread, which is the body, hoc ec corpus. Hoc ec corpus. Hocus pocus. This is where some believe that, that whole, because the, 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 in the Dark Ages, the people didn't speak Latin. They would go to Mass, and the priest would say this over and over again, and it, it got heard, hocus pocus, something magic is happening here. This is magic bread. And if I take my magic bread, I will be cleansed. Is there anything magic in the wafer that we take in communion? No, it's just simply a symbol. It can become superstitious if we don't know God. And so, with that in mind, because the lesson talks about how the curse of Balaam would have no power over the people. The curse of Balaam could not harm those who God blesses. Really. Incantations and curses have no direct or objective ability to injure or hurt. But what if the people who hear them believe the curses? Will the curse then have power over those who believe them? Yes. Yes. So is this why God intervened to influence Balaam so that Balaam could not or did not curse Israel because the children of Israel were so immature that if they would have heard the curses from Balaam, some of them may have believed and been hurt by them? Is that possible? No, there's an example from Scripture, yes. The twelve spies came back from Canaan, gave a negative report, and the whole camp, except for a few, were discouraged by this report. So if they get a curse from Balaam, who was placing this curse on them, no, his words have no power. There's nothing they can objectively do, but where is Satan's power? Lies that we believe. Lies that we believe. And if we believe those lies, they can destroy us. So, in Romans chapter 14, Paul is dealing with this very issue. There were certain people who were afraid to eat certain foods sold in the market because the meat that you bought in the market prior to being sliced and diced and made into your hot dogs and hamburgers and all the things that they sold in the market um, was offered, the animal was offered as a sacrifice to the pagan god. And that after it was slaughtered and sacrificed to the pagan god, the meat of that animal was then cut up and sold at market. And so some Christians were afraid to eat the meat that had been offered to idols. 
And Paul says those who are great in faith can eat anything they want. But those who are weak in faith shouldn't eat the meat. Why? Because the meat, having been offered to an idol, now has an objective poison or, or curse or somehow is contaminated in some way. And then if you eat this meat sold to idols, it's going to really have something in it that could hurt you. Or your belief, your belief that this is harmful will hurt you. It's the power of belief. It's a power in the mind. And so, Paul then gives the right advice. Those of mature faith can eat anything. Speaking about eating anything because you know that it being offered to a piece of wood or a piece of stone or a piece of metal doesn't in any way change the inherent nature of the nutritional value of whatever it is the food you're eating. However, Satan's a trickster. He took this advice from Paul and he twisted it so people interpret it. So you can eat anything. Therefore, the laws of nutrition have now been suspended by God. So anything we eat is equally nutritious for us, and it won't hurt us at all, and it won't undermine our our brain power or anything else. No, Paul's not speaking about laws of nutrition. And so, unfortunately, many Christians have taken this truth that we can eat anything from a spiritual perspective and not be condemned spiritually or ceremonially unclean or, or somehow contaminated in our souls... But that doesn't mean it's nutritious for the spirit temple. And that we still have a responsibility to maintain health of the temple. And the health of the body impacts the health of the brain. And the healthier the brain, the more we can comprehend and pursue God. So it doesn't do away with the, the messages of, of healthful living. Monday's lesson. Any questions about that? Power of belief. What we believe and how it can destroy us. I, I have given some examples in here before, so I didn't want to repeat those examples. Yes. I have a question then uh, in regards to certain toys and animals that uh, is believed that uh, comes from Satan's underworld and all that, developed from that philosophy. Does that mean that there, uh, we believe that they are from that and that, that Satan is involved with that, that Satan can control a home through those, that that actually is not true, it's a lie? You mean like a Ouija board? Yes, yeah, Satan has power over us as we believe and follow him. So in other words, we could use those and not believe that's true? Uh, it depends on what you're using them for. If you were to come along and you were from some other country, you've never heard of a Ouija board, you see this Ouija board here, you don't know what it is, and you begin playing uh, some uh, like tic-tac-toe game with it, what do you think? Satan's going to have power over you? You're gonna, your house is going to be controlled by demons? No. If you, however, in your mind are thinking, hey, this is demonic. If I play with this, I'm opening myself up with, to Satan, and, and he's going to have access to me. Well, let's do it. Is that different? Yes. yes. Okay? So it's, the, the, the thing is, it's nothing. The Ouija board is nothing. Other than what it gets you to change in your thinking and the choices you make toward what it represents. Just like an idol. If we had a little idol of, of Heket, the frog god of Egypt, in here. That little idol is nothing other than inanimate material. But if you look at that and it represents to you a pathway to, to Satan who stands behind it and, and, and you're afraid of it or you believe it's watching you and, and, and it's got power over you and, and then you, you hear, I don't know, the, the air conditioner kick on and you think, oh, there's a demon up there. Um, then all these beliefs that you're having are going to have power over you. And if you actually looked at the idol and said, well, um, and you start talking to it, well, uh, uh, little cat, will you please send, send your, your power here to protect me? Will it have power over you? It's nothing. 
But as it gets you to open your mind in that direction, it has power over you. Yes? Often, though, if you tell someone that this kind of material or movies that um, are really current right now that have that kind of material in them, it's harmful and upstate, and they laugh at you and say, oh, that's stupid. Of course it's not. It's just a, it's just a fairy tale. It's just fun. Okay, movies are different. Movies are different. Like if you're playing with a Ouija board and there's a bunch of kids playing with it and you tell them you shouldn't be playing with it, that's satanic, they just think you're stupid. Again, I think it has to go with what you believe it means. But kids don't understand, so they're, you know, doing And of course, you're playing with the Ouija board, it comes with the instructions, and it tells you what it's supposed to do, and so therefore it will have damaging effects because you're following the damaging instructions that come with it. I was more hypothesizing, you just find a board, you don't have no idea what it is, you play with it as a frisbee or something, and it's not going to hurt you. Yes? Where does curiosity fall? Would that be believing, or would that be... Now, I think God created us with curiosity. God created us to, to, to have a, a knowledge, to exp- a desire in our hearts to understand, to reach outside of ourselves, to, to grow, to develop. To, when, when, when Adam was walking through the garden and he, and he saw a, a beautiful tree, he had curiosity about, about how it worked and its mechanisms and, and the blossoms and all these things. That's a healthy thing to have curiosity. Curiosity is not unhealthy. It's when we take the curiosity in paths that we have understanding are unhealthy for us. And we choose to go there anyway because it's certain thrilling or exciting. And we, and we already know ahead of time that it's not healthy for us to do. That is dangerous then. Does that make sense? Yeah. And we open our mind up to influences. And so the movie issue is different on several levels. Theatrical entertainment on a neurobiologic level alters the brain development of people. Theatrical entertainment activates the emotional centers, the limbic centers, and overdevelops them because it's overstimulating them. And the way the brain is made, the neural circuits you fire get stronger, expand, recruit more neurons, and get bigger. Simultaneously, theatrical entertainment suspends activity of prefrontal cortex. And so the more theatrical entertainment you watch, the more moody and irritable, the more impulsive, the less able you attend, focus, organize, plan. So it has a neurobiologic consequence that your brain is altered by watching theatrical entertainment, number one. Number two, theatrical entertainment, for especially for kids growing who haven't developed a very solid belief system, a very solid value system, who are trying to figure out the rights and wrongs of the world, give them a philosophical worldview that is twisted and distorted, and they, and they internalize beliefs. Remember, what we believe has power over us. Power to heal and power to destroy. And so as we get these false beliefs of Satan's worldview fed to us through theatrical entertainment, and those beliefs become some of our beliefs, and those beliefs have power over us. And so in two mechanisms, theatrical entertainment is very harmful. Harmful to children more because children are more susceptible having not formed beliefs and their brains are more pliable in the stage of development. But it's also harmful to adults as well. I don't know if anybody, you don't have to raise your hands in, in confession in here today, but um, has anybody seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Saving Private Ryan was based on a true story of Private Ryan, who had four of his brothers killed in World War II. And so the, the Pentagon sent out orders. They were to find him. He was in the Normandy Beach Landing. Find him and, and save him. He's the last son, surviving son of this family. And in the opening of this movie, they depict, as graphically as been depicted from Hollywood, as accurately as uh, for those people who were in the Normandy Beach Landing, the Normandy Beach Landing was depicted as accurately as film has done, as far as I know. And in the opening scenes of that movie, for people who've watched it, they will tell you uh, that their heart rate picked up. They became tremulous. They got nauseated. 
And if you were to do um, heart rate and blood pressure on them, they would would be skyrocketing. They would have catecholamine surges going through their their system. Because what's happening is this theatrical medium is putting you vicariously in this position where you are experiencing the stress of the Normandy beach landing without actually being there. This has a biological consequence to you. The stress cascade releases inflammatory factors. It, uh, the inflammatory factors activate immune system. This cascade of cytokines actually, uh, and if you watch a lot of theatrical entertainment, it causes physiological problems peripherally. It increases the risk of obesity, diabetes, ischemic heart attacks, strokes, um, uh, 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 inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, all these different things, and it reacts back upon the brain and contributes to various mental illnesses like depression. This is, this is what it does. And it's a real biological consequence to it. So it's different than simply having an idol in your house that you believe in. It's actually more powerful than that. Okay, um, I didn't mean to get off on that. Sorry, guys. All right, um, where are we in our lesson? Oh, Balaam. We're talking about Balaam. Was Balaam, Monday's lesson, was Balaam an Israelite? No, he wasn't an Israelite. And we have some lessons to learn from this. Balaam was not an Israelite. But did God speak through Balaam? Yes, he did. There's a messianic prophecy uh, in Numbers 24:17 about the star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of, of Israel. A prophecy of the Messiah. God spoke to and through Balaam, but he was not a descendant of Israel. What does that tell us? God didn't work exclusively with the Jews. Recognize that. When we read the scripture, the Jews were there for one purpose. They were there to be a theater to teach the plan of salvation and to convert all mankind and be the conduit for the Messiah. But they were not the exclusive path of salvation as, as far as that system. You didn't have to come to Jerusalem and, and participate in the sacrificial system of, of the Jewish nation in order to experience salvation. Nebuchadnezzar, Naaman, and other people of the Old Testament never did that. But if you were a Jew, you had to participate. Why? Because it was a theater. And if you are an acting troupe in a theater, you have to follow the script. And you have to follow the director's instructions. But if you're not part of the acting troupe and you're just the audience watching, you don't have to participate in the script, but you have to learn the lesson and participate in the lesson that the, the, the enactment was designed to teach. So all those who are saved participate in the truth that this acting thing was pointing toward, but you didn't have to be an actor to be able to participate in the truth. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, also... This idea of, of Balaam being a prophet, prophesied with, with true prophecy, a knowledge of the true God, does that mean, does this give us insight in how we should deal with true prophets of God? Should we believe everything a prophet says? No. <laughs> We're convinced so-and-so is a prophet of God. They come with X, Y, and Z message. Should we accept that they're prophet? What about Peter, an apostle? Apostle in the hierarchy is a little higher than a prophet. Did Peter have to get corrected by Paul publicly because he was wrong? Yes. Or should we just believe, well, if Peter says we should do these things, and Peter's an apostle, we should just go with it. Don't think for ourselves now. You see, one of the dangers we have is surrendering, surrendering our thinking to a prophet. The prophet is there to give us a message for us to think about, for us to process, so us to check with the rest of Scripture, to us have a conversation with God about, for us to be persuaded in our own mind. As Paul says, everyone should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Yes. Okay, good. Yes, yes, that's what we should do. Think it through for ourselves.
Even Ellen White said that too. Yes. That's right. And the point is, how about if you're convinced that X, Y, and Z person is a prophet, does that mean everything they said is always true? Or look at the example of the young prophet and the old prophet. The young and the old prophet. It's right in Scripture. The prophet lied to him. Balaam was clearly not following the directions of God at times, even though God was talking to him. Peter was wrong. Nathan had to be corrected. Nathan had to be corrected, okay? Because Nathan told uh, David, go ahead and build the temple. But, but did, did, uh, oh, I spoke too soon. <laughs> nope, don't build the temple. Yes. So there's examples, and, and I think that we need to be careful how we use this reality so that we don't discard the prophetic word. That would be foolish. But we shouldn't also turn off our brains and let some other person tell us what to think blindly. Because it does us no good. We have to be persuaded. We have to come to our own conclusion. Now, ba- Balaam, after he was unable to curse the people of Israel, didn't do it, he gave some advice to Balak. What, what advice did he give him? He gave counsel. He couldn't curse them, so he gave Balak counsel. Seduce them into idolatry and fertility, and they will be cursed. That's what he told Balak. Bring them into your fertility cults and your idol worship, and then they will be cursed. What do you think about that council? Why would they be cursed? What does it mean to be cursed? Sin takes priority over everything you do. Sin takes priority. So the curse isn't something handed down from God. When you look at the Old Testament... And, and you hear these strong words from God over and over again in Ezekiel and Hosea and lots of places. I will strike out against you. I will, I will be like a lion to you. I will shoot all my arrows against you. The God speaks to him like this all through the Old Testament. What did God actually do every time? And it says it right there in the scripture. Every time. He abandoned them. He let them go. He surrendered them to their own choices. And then the Babylonians came, or the Assyrians came, or, or someone else, because he no longer was there to protect them. He set them free. You want to have other gods? I'll let you have your other gods. And what happened every time? This is the curse. When we turn our backs on God, when we reject him, ultimately he will, if we insist on it, at some point, let us go. All right, um, Thursday's lesson, if any of you have not, um, we're going to jump to Thursday, I read Brad Cole's revamped website, godscharacter.com. I really encourage you to check it out. He's got a lot of really great material on there. And um, the Thursday's lesson is about justice, and there's a quotation. He's got a whole list of quotes from various people about God and about God's character. And this is from somebody named Sharon Baker, and she says, Whereas retributive justice seeks to fit the punishment to the crime, attempting to control wrongdoing through punishment, restorative justice forgives the crime and seeks to redeem wrongdoing through a repairing of the relationship. Justice, therefore, does not mean getting, uh, getting let off the hook or getting away with murder or worse. It means coming face-to-face with the shameful depravity of personal sin by coming face-to-face with the one who has the right and the power to punish, but who instead loves and forgives. Love and forgiveness instead of anger and punishment bring repentance and redemption, and in this manner, justice is served. What do you all think? Because what is justice when we think about justice? Justice is doing What's right? And what does justice look like when the justice is always predicated or built upon the law of love? God is love. 
So justice is always a manifestation of God's love. What does it look like? Healing. Healing. Restoration. Recreation. Forgiveness. This is what justice looks like. We do a great disservice by projecting our human, distorted, earthly ideas of justice. George Bush justice onto God. How do you like that? What's George Bush justice? He wants to kill him. Vengeance. Kill him. Let's find him, hunt him down, kill him. Well, that's what God's doing, right? He says, let's find him, hunt him down, and save them. Find him, hunt him down, heal him. Restore him. Regenerate him. Recreate him. Purify him. That's what justice looks like. And then Friday's lesson, I wanted to get this before we close. Top paragraph, Friday's lesson. He who will abuse animals because he has... This is from, um, by the way, Patriarchs and Prophets, um, page 443. Patriarchs and Prophets, 443. He who will abuse animals because he has them in his power is both a coward and a tyrant. A, a disposition to cause pain, whether to, be, whether to our fellow man or to brute creation, is satanic. Many do not realize that their cruelty will ever be known because the poor dumb animal cannot reveal it. But could the eyes of these men be opened as were those of Balaam? They would see an angel of God standing as a witness to testify against him in the courts above. A record goes up to heaven and a day is coming when judgment will be pronounced against those who have abused God's creatures. How about, go Ellen! Hmm? Isn't that right? Yeah, how do you like this cruelty to animals, huh? I told my wife on the way over I was going to read an Ellen White quote. She was going to go, go Ellen! See, my wife loves animals. She can't stand people hurting animals. Yeah. And, and how do you like that if you see somebody cruelly torturing an animal? Do you like that? No. So, but what do you think about this idea here of the angels standing in, in testimony against them in the courts above? As you think about this, which is more impactful to your mind? To persuade you of someone's guilt. Hearing the personal testimony from a victim or a witness or watching the security video of it happening and hearing the perpetrator describe the crime with their own words. Which is more impactful to you to persuade you? Victim and witness testimony or watching the video and hearing the perpetrator admit it out of their own mouth? Okay? See, we will have better than security video when we get to heaven of everything that's inspired in everybody's life on planet Earth, number one. Yes? We will have even more than that. We will have real-time evidence about how each person interacts with God when they meet him. How they treat him. What their attitude is. And we are told that, as you know, at the end of the thousand years, the New Jerusalem comes down. The wicked dead are raised. The gates of the New Jerusalem are open. And what do the wicked do? Prepare for war. They prepare for war. There's no repentance. There's no humbling. They prepare machinery and they march on the city. Their own behavior testifies against them. Even in the face of the New Jerusalem, all the saints, the angels of God, Christ on his throne, they still march on the city. Do you need to hear the testimony of the angels to be convinced? So then, if that's the case, if all this evidence they're going to give us themselves, then why is it written this way? Why is it written like angels are going to testify, they're keeping record, it's going to be in the court, and you're going to... Why is it written this way? What kind of people need to hear this message? This message needs to be heard by what kind of people? How about those who are abusing animals? Do the person, does a person who is abusing animals need to hear this message to be brought to repentance? Yes. 
those who are being cruel. And what kind of minds do such people have? How tender are the consciences? How open to truth? How sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God are people who are cruel to animals? How much of God's true nature do such individuals know and appreciate? Then what kind of message does such a person need to be brought to some sense of halt in their actions and maybe contemplation and reflection? They need a message like this. Hey, you're going to be in trouble. The angels are keeping charge of you. They're, you're going to face it in court. You are going to get it. Okay? This is written not for the righteous. This is written for those who can't appreciate the true nature of the universe, to bring them to repentance. And when you realize that, does it give you some insight as to why the Bible reads the way the Bible reads? Look at the people, Korah, Dath, and Abiram. We've been just reading about numbers. After their rebellion, after the earth swallows up, sucks them down, their whole family, poop, gone. 24 hours later, what are the people doing? 24 hours later. I mean, if here we are in church today, somebody stands up and curses God and, and blasphemes here, and, the, and, and we see the earth open up, swallow them and their entire family. <laughs> What's the chances with tomorrow you're going to come here and curse God? Do you think you might at least wait a week? <laughs> okay, 24 hours later they were at it again cursing God, rebelling, complaining all this stuff, 24 hours later after seeing this why does God have to do this stuff? these people are dense their minds, their consciences are seared the Levite and his concubine I mean, how do you have to speak to people who, uh, who, who visit some place and leaves his concubine out to be raped by men all night and then once she is dead, he comes and cuts her up into 12 pieces because she was raped to death, sends the 12 pieces out to the 12 tribes of Israel and gathers war to go hunt the people down who raped his concubine. Or even in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, many people miss that whole thing and they think Sodom and Gomorrah is about homosexuality. It is not about homosexuality. Read Ezekiel chapter 16. It'll tell you what it's about. Imagine you're, you're visiting. Visitors come. These are two angels. They come in the form of men. And all the men of the city turn out and demand to have sex with them. Do you think that if the two angels would have come in the form of women, and all the men of the city would have turned out and demand to have sex with them, that God would have said, well done, well done. <laughs> Good heterosexual men down there. Go for it. This was not about homosexuality. This was about Lack of empathy, lack of compassion, lack of love, self-centeredness, willing to exploit, lack of hospitality. And that's exactly what it says in Ezekiel chapter 16. The sin of your sister in Sodom was, she didn't care about the poor and the needy. She was arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and inhospitable. This is what it was about. So how do we have to speak? And, so, and by the way, and what did Lot do? When they wanted the men, he offered his two virgin daughters. Think about Lot. He's the righteous one getting saved. They've turned out to rape the men. Lot says, hey, don't do that. Don't, don't be so wicked. Here, I have two virgin adolescent girls. Why don't you take your pleasures out on them tonight? How do you like that, guys? He's the righteous one. Do you think there's a problem in thinking? This is why the Bible reads the way it reads, so through the scriptures. We have all these hard stories and hard language, and God speaking so brutally, because their minds don't hear the gentle words. And so you read in Hosea, the children of Israel stubborn like a mule. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you will speak the words that we need to hear in order to break through the hardness of our hearts, to bring us to the point of repentance so that we can finally stop being afraid, so that we can experience your love, your restoration, your recreation. Break through the distortions of our mind, Lord. Take away the fears of our heart. 
Let us experience your love and let that love flow through us that we can give of ourselves to a world around us and let them see the truth about your nature and character, that this world can be lighted, lighted with your glory, that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.